The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I don't know if you've ever been in a setting, in a situation where you say to yourself, I'm not sure I belong in this setting. I remember a situation very clearly like that. I was in seventh grade, and it was the first time I was playing tackle football. I had joined the middle school team, and I played mostly soccer growing up, but I really think football was my first love because I grew up watching uh, the Miami Dolphins in the 90s. Grew up watching Dan Marino. I remember in 1995, Dan Marino's, I mean, it was the highest scoring game with Dan Marino as the quarterback, and he scored 52 points against the Jets. I mean, can you imagine a team scoring (laughs) over 50 points? I mean, that would be, I mean, historic. I mean, it's almost unheard of until last weekend, but I'm just all I'm going to say on the subject. It's all I'm going to say on the subject. Okay. Did I come up with an opening illustration so I could talk about the Dolphins last weekend? I'm not saying I did, but I'm just going to keep moving. Anyway, I was playing uh, football. The problem was, um, you know, in middle school, like a lot of the guys had hit their growth spurts, and so they were like men among boys. But in seventh grade, like I was weighing 92 pounds, okay? And so he started me with the free safeties. And so that was like, you know, I could just run around like and try and find someone to tackle or to avoid would probably be more like it. But um, the problem was I wasn't fast. And so he's like, okay, I can't put him in free safety. So he put me with the linebackers. He says, okay, I'll put him with the linebackers. And so I'm like, okay, this could be cool. Like I was thinking of the famous linebackers I knew. And I remember that first practice, I was shifted over to the linebackers. They did this drill, and it was called Bull in the Ring. And I was like, oh, this should be interesting. And so um, he described the drill, and the color started draining from my face. Here's how it works. There's one of the linebackers was, was put in the middle. Everyone else formed a ring around him. The one in the middle is the bull. Everyone else gets a number. When the coach calls out the number, the person says here, and then they run at the guy in the middle, and they're supposed to just collide. It's about quickness. It's about contact. It's about toughness. And so um, I find myself in the middle, okay? And I'm like having an out-of-body experience. Like, this is clearly not going to go well. And they call a number, and I turn around, and I get decleated. Okay, like I am on my back immediately. At one moment, I'm on my feet. The next moment, I'm on my back. Okay, and I'm like, oh, I see. I'm supposed to get out of the way. Like that seemed logical. The next guy, I just move out. He goes flying. The coach has to explain, no, you're supposed to try and hit each other. And I'm like, well, then I will be dead by the end of practice, okay? And I remember thinking, I am really not sure that, I, that I, I am supposed to be here. This does not feel like the context for me. Okay, I bring that up because a lot of times we talk about our calling as believers, that we're sent into the world. And this entire series has all been about, it's called Monday, so it's about us that work is not just like a piece of our life. It's not just a slice of our life, just like uh, like our faith. Our faith flows into all of it. And so a lot of times what we end up doing is we have like our faith, it's really alive, it's robust when we're at church. Well, of course it is. I mean, we come to church, we see people that are either 
interested in exploring about God or know and love God. We see it's like a, it's a safe place. It's a welcoming place. The music is all pointing us to God. There's a message that, that is supposed to be training us up to follow God. Like it's easy to be and feel spiritual at church, of course. But then Monday morning comes, Mondays come, and we go to work. And oftentimes, if not in some ways all the time, trying to live out our faith at work feels like, can often feel like, like I am just not in a zone where like that makes sense. Like I feel like that doesn't belong here. Or I can just feel like maybe I don't belong here. It's hard to have an authentic faith and live that out on Mondays sometimes. And so here's what we tend to do. What we tend to do is we just kind of separate it. And so on, on the weekends, on Sundays, we kind of flip the switch on. We're vibrant, we're spiritual, and then we're like, I don't know how to bring that in on Monday, so I kind of flip the switch off. Or maybe when I'm at home, like I, I read the Bible and I pray in the morning, and then, and then I kind of just go to work and I do my things I have to, and I've got to get a paycheck, and I've got to support my family. And then I come back home from work, and, and, um, and then I, I'm kind of like trying to be, you know, like a godly guy, or maybe I'm, I go to go to small group in the evenings, but it's hard. To, how does that faith, how do I live out a, as a Christian on Mondays? And sometimes, sometimes it just feels like it just doesn't belong. And there's this tension of how are we supposed to be sent out and be in the world, but as often it's said, um, but not be of the world. And if we're going to live out our faith at work, like we have to understand that tension. I want to show you this segment of this story that we've been looking at through this series. It's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And I want you to see how Joseph lived that out because it's, it's really profound and it's very instructive for us in helping us understand that tension. Open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to Genesis 41. Let's take a look at this story. Powerful, profound story for us. Let's just start with verse 14. Genesis 41, 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Let's just get caught up on the story. If you're just now joining us in this series, this is about the Old Testament Joseph. Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. God renames Jacob Israel. So he's one of the 12 sons of Israel. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. That, that plays a role throughout the rest of scripture. Um, Joseph is one of those sons. He's one of the youngest sons, but he's being groomed to take over the family business. His older brothers are very jealous of him, and so they, they got to get rid of him. They sell him into slavery. So while he's growing up in what would eventually be uh, the promised land, he is now on a caravan heading down to Egypt, and he finds himself in Egypt, which is another country, another culture, another continent. He was in the Middle East. Now he's in Africa. He finds himself in Egypt. He's purchased by a man named Potiphar, a high-ranking official for Pharaoh. 
and he goes to work on Monday. Finds himself as a slave in this house. He's working, and, and God is with him. God is with him in his work. God blesses his work, and he rises up to prominence in Potiphar's house. He's the administrator over all of Potiphar's house. The problem is Potiphar's wife is a predator. She comes after Joseph. Joseph stands his ground against her advances, so she lies about him, and he finds himself thrown in prison. It's um, called the pit. He's thrown down into prison, and he's got to be asking, God, I didn't know what was worse than being a slave in Potiphar's house. Now I find out it's being in prison. But God is with him, and God shows up in his work. And he's rising through the ranks, and now he's the administrator over the entire prison. Well, two more high-ranking officials find themselves in prison with Joseph. One is the cupbearer and the baker, and he's tending to these VIP prisoners. One night they have dreams that they believe are significant. They're signs or omens. And so they're like, we don't know uh, what to do with these dreams. And Joseph says, maybe God will give me an interpretation. Tell me your dreams. They tell him their dreams. Joseph interprets it. And sure enough, it happens exactly how Joseph interprets it. Um, You have the the baker ends up getting executed. The cupbearer gets restored to his position at the right hand of Pharaoh. Joseph just has one question for the cupbearer as he's leaving that prison to be restored with Pharaoh. He just says, look, I'm, not, I'm here unjustly. Could you just remember me when you're standing in front of Pharaoh? Cupbearer's like, absolutely. And then he forgets. But then two years later, Potiphar has a dream. And Potiphar's like, man, if only there was someone who could help interpret my dream, and the cupbearer remembers at that exact moment. It's all orchestrated by God. And he says, there is someone. So then we get to verse 14. Joseph is brought up out of the pit. That's the same word often used for, for death. He's rising up. It's a powerful image. He's rising up. And it says he's, he, he shaves himself, so he's probably shaving his beard. Now remember, his culture was you grew out a beard. You didn't shave your beard. That would be humiliating in his previous culture. But he shaved his beard. Probably also shaved his head, um, but we don't know for sure. But he basically, the point is, he's shaving himself so that he is now more Egyptian culture than the culture, the Middle Eastern culture he came from. So he shaves himself and now he changes his clothes. Okay, And now he's standing before Potiphar. I'm sorry, before Pharaoh. He's now standing before Pharaoh. Now, um, it takes, the scripture takes time to express that now Joseph is looking very Egyptian. He's standing before uh, Pharaoh to interpret this dream. Okay. It's hard, before you go on, it's hard to really appreciate what it would be like to be standing with Pharaoh, like, personally. Like, not just in the room, but having, like, an exchange with Pharaoh. It's, like, really hard to come up with a modern parallel. There's probably not a modern parallel because the Pharaohs, for about 2,500 years, were the undisputed most powerful men on the planet. And this is right square in the middle of all that. 
There's not like a close second. Pharaoh's not one of the most powerful rulers. He's undisputedly the most powerful ruler. Now, we don't know for sure which Pharaoh it was that uh, Joseph's standing before, but when you kind of calculate biblical history and then uh, ancient history, we can get within a couple of those pharaohs. And we, we know like those pharaohs, like we know about, they're so famous, so important from antiquity. Like we know about them. There's still statues of them and there's tombs of them. Like we know them. So one of those pharaohs, we, um, we, that it's very likely this pharaoh. We actually have carvings of this particular pharaoh. In fact, here's one of those uh, carvings of that pharaoh um, in, in ancient times. Like this is probably something like what that pharaoh looked like. That's how significant these men were. Like we still kind of know about them 4,000 years later. In fact, one artist got, based on the carvings, got a model that looked like uh, the Pharaoh, and so we can see what it would look like in kind of modern terms, like if it was an actual person. Go ahead to the next uh, photo. Um, here would be kind of what he would look like. Joseph finds himself standing before uh, a Pharaoh, this Pharaoh. It's hard to estimate how powerful this man was. There's not really a human alive that today that would be that intimidating, that powerful, that absolutely powerful. What does Joseph do? Let's keep going. Pick it up in verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pause with me for a second. You're standing in front of the most powerful man in the world. And like, this is your chance. Like for one, like you're just trying to get out of there not dying. Secondly, like if you can get out of there freed from prison and maybe slavery, like that's a win. Maybe if you can get some kind of like good job out of it, that's also a win. So if you stand before him and he says, um, you know, hey, I hear you have this special skill. Like, what's your play? Like, the play is to become an indispensable person to this powerful person. Yes, you're right. I have this specific skill that you really need. I'm glad you heard this. I mean, that's the play. The play is like, even if you're not really confident, you act like, yes, of course, that's on my resume. You got it, boss. I'll nail it. I know everything about it. And then you go back like, I've got to figure out how to do this. I mean, like, that's, that's the play. Like, the play is you make yourself indispensable. You make yourself needed. You make yourself important. You, make, you, you up your value. And his opening words to Pharaoh, he says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And when you hear a dream, you know what it means. And Joseph says, nah, I can't do any of that but I think God's going to give you a favorable answer. He used that moment. There was not guaranteed a second sentence out of Joseph's mouth. That could have been the end. He used that moment not to elevate his value and his indispensability, but he used that moment to point to God. How does this play out? Pharaoh tells him his dream. The dream is very Egyptian. It's a dream about the Nile. 
And God's going to work through this dream. I want you to notice God's working through Egyptian culture in this dream. Pharaoh doesn't have a dream about the Jordan. He has a dream about the Nile. And out of the Nile comes these plump, healthy cows, seven of them, and then some really scrawny cows then come out after them, and the scrawny cows eat the plump cows. And then he has a second dream, very similar, where these, there's these really uh, seven healthy stalks of grain, and then there's these, these seven unhealthy stalks, and the unhealthy stalks consume the healthy ones. He's like, I know it means something. What does it mean? And Joseph says, here's what God is saying to you. God is saying to you that there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so you need to use the seven years of plenty to prepare the entire empire for the seven years of famine. I mean, that's a really helpful heads up, isn't it? When there's plenty and you can know ahead of time that it's going to be followed by famine, like it's helpful to know how to use those seasons of plenty. God is giving Pharaoh a heads up in a way Pharaoh could understand. And he's speaking through Joseph. We need to prepare ahead of time. And then Joseph said, now now watch what happens next. It's so powerful. And Pastor Justin was walking us through this last week. Joseph is now going to not just interpret the dream, but that's not the only thing God has done in Joseph's life. Joseph has these three instances in his father's house, in Potiphar's house, and then in the prison of growing in experience in administration. And so he turns on his administrative brain. God not only uses the miracle of interpretation, but miraculously gives Joseph wisdom from his experience, and Joseph goes into chief operations mode. He says, here's how you have to execute this. You're going to need a person that can oversee this, and you're going to need to set aside a certain percentage for seven years, and it needs to be administrated well so that we can provide for Egypt. I mean, it's so powerful. God is using Joseph, not just through the miraculous of the dreams. He's using Joseph's experience, gifting, skills. He's using Joseph through his work. And he's going to save an entire empire and a region and the people of God, his family, that there's a promise over, are going to find themselves in Egypt. And God's greater plan is going to be protected all through Joseph's work and where he's placed. Watch how Pharaoh responds. I want you to jump down to verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of who? God. Not Ra. Elohim. Out of the mouth of Pharaoh. Powerful. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. When then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee, bow the knee, 
Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Take note, Joseph becomes one of the most powerful men in the world. Joseph didn't try when he had the moment. He didn't try to build his own platform. He just tried to glorify God and let God do what he wanted with his platform. And man, when you get what God can do, it's nothing like what you could do. He's put over the entire land of Egypt. It's amazing, out of the mouth of Pharaoh, like the wisdom of Elohim. I mean, they have a lot of gods in Egypt. An ancient Egyptian religion with the Book of the Dead and the mummification and all of the tombs and stuff. Like, there's some real dark sides to the ancient Egyptian religion. Elohim, the God of the Bible, is not one of their gods. And yet out of the mouth of Pharaoh, he can't deny the spirit of Almighty God on Joseph. He changes Joseph's name. And this name, probably, the, probably what's going on here, scholars believe, is that it's like the uh, Hebrew spelling of an Egyptian name, which means God speaks and he lives. Isn't that beautiful? Joseph comes up out of the pit. Same word often associated with Sheol, the place of the dead. He comes up out of the pit. And what's riding on that moment is if God speaks through him or not, God does speak and Joseph lives. God speaks and he lives. And not only does Joseph live, I mean, the entire region is going to live by the word of God through Joseph. Powerful. And then Pharaoh is going to arrange a marriage for Joseph. Um, he's going to be married into the house of Potiphera. Now it's like, hey, didn't we hear someone with a similar name? What, is that similar to Potiphar? Is that like the feminine version of the word Potiphar? Um, that's not. What, the, what they believe that was going on there with that name is the beginning of that name. Uh, the Potiph part is, or Potiphar part is a, uh, it's like a pattern for a name. And it's, it means like a, the gift of, and then at the end, you have uh, an Egyptian god. So the gift of, so Potiphar Ra means the gift of Ra. And this man was one of the priests of the city On. Now that city we know was one of the hubs for the worship of the god Ra, which is one of the primary gods. Pharaoh himself saw himself as the son of Ra and was worshiped as the son of Ra. And so Joseph is being married into one of the, one of the most powerful men's, men's families. I mean, this, is, this guy is one of the main spiritual leaders in Egypt overseeing the worship of Ra and on, okay? Now imagine, you are 
in the covenant family of Yahweh. There's a promise over your family and you just got married into the priest's family that worships Ra. That's complicated. His wife, Asenath, means in Egyptian, belonging to Neith. Neith was the mother, one of the mother gods, one of the primary mother gods. So at very least, Joseph's wife has been dedicated to Neith. At most, Neith had priestesses. Possibly she could have been a priestess to Neith. Either way, Joseph is married into a very spiritual family and they are not worshipers of Yahweh. That's very complicated. Uh, Asenath comes home, hey, dad's throwing a festival for Ra. They're gonna do a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of sacrifices. It's our family tradition to go and get involved in those sacrifices. We're going to go this year, right, Joseph? It's complicated. How does he work through this, this arranged marriage that he finds himself in? It's messy. What this passage is showing is this passage, Joseph has completely, basically become Egyptian. He, um, he's by the end, you know, he's got the Egyptian haircut, he's got the Egyptian clothes, he's got Egyptian name, he's got an Egyptian family that he's married into. By the time his brothers see him, many years later, they no longer recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, he dresses like an Egyptian, walks like an Egyptian. I, I, I didn't, you made me do it, okay? I did not want to do it. There it is. I hope you're happy. Okay. He's become an Egyptian. Let's finish off the story of Joseph at work. Let's pick it up in verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's, and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to, to you, do." So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Uh, it worked out just as God had told Pharaoh it would through Joseph, and God used Joseph, used Joseph mightily in that. But in the middle of that, okay, we, where we left off with Joseph is he had this really complicated family situation. And we don't really know much about how his marriage went with uh, Asenath. We don't know much about how that, how that relationship went. But we do know about Joseph's faith and we know about his leadership in his home. The family he married into had a tradition of naming their family members in honor to Egyptian gods, Potiphera and Asenath. But he named his sons in honor of God. And what he was responsible for in his home, in his faith, 
he stayed true to the Lord. Yes, it was a complicated and messy association to be married into that family. But Joseph was the one doing the influencing. Here's what's so powerful about this. It's so redemptive in this probably pretty dark worshiping family of the Potiphar line. Think about this. Um, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Let me just give you some Bible nerd stuff for a second just so you can see how this will play out. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, 400 years later, they are going back to the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and each tribe gets an allotment of land, and each tribe has land all around the promised land, right? There are 12 tribes. One of those tribes, the Levites, are set aside to worship, as uh, to lead Israel in worship to God, so they are not given land. They have cities all throughout all of the tribes. That is their allotment. But there are still, so that reduces it to 11 allotments, right? Well, how come there are 12 allotments? Joseph is treated as the firstborn, and first, the firstborn son would get a double portion of what all the other sons get. So while the other sons get one portion, Joseph's house gets two. So his two sons, this is why you never hear of a tribe of Joseph. His two sons get an allotment, Manasseh gets an allotment, and Ephraim gets an allotment. And so a lot of times, though there were 12 brothers, a lot of times the 12 tribes, you hear Ephraim and Manasseh each treated as separate tribes, even though they're both from sons of Joseph and Asenath. Here's what's so fascinating. Those two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are half Egyptian. That's how God continually works his providence, drawing all nations to himself. It's powerful. And in those two sons, Joseph will break the tradition from the, from the godlessness side of the family and will the, the future of his children will be worshipers of Yahweh. God brings them into the messiness of those associations and he influences them towards God. Here's what we see. Joseph at work. You see that he was, in many ways, he would have looked like, a, like an Egyptian. He, he became Egyptian, essentially. But he was overt about his faith. Said it openly to Pharaoh. Openly in the names of his children. You see that he found himself in, in close and complicated relationships. But he was the one doing the influencing in those relationships. See, here's what we've been working through in this series. We, we've been talking about how, man, look, our work is not separate. It's sacred. He cares about your work. Maybe you run a company. Maybe you're a first responder. Maybe you're in sales. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're an educator. Wherever it is that you work, when you go to an office, when you are doing your work, you are expressing how you're made in the image of God. God cares about his work, about your work, and he wants to work through you. Your, worth is not, your work is not separate. Your work is sacred. He cares about your work. Because he cares about your work, he says to do your work as, your work, as if you're working for God, not for humans. And so when we work, a mark that the Holy Spirit is working through you is that your work is excellent. And that what you do is excellent, that you work hard, that you do things well, you do things honestly, you do things right, you do things with a humble demeanor, you do things putting others first. When you do it, you do it with excellence. That's a mark of the Holy Spirit at work through you. 
In week three, we talked about, man, no matter what season you're in, maybe you're waiting in a season of waiting, but look around you. There's people all around you. Careers come and go. They increase and decrease, but people are eternal. God cares about people, and he's put people all around you to have an impact on. Last week, we talked about what God cares about for your work is he cares about the flourishing of the city. He wants to work through you to, bring, to preserve life and bring flourishing to his city. Part of how city transformation takes place, part of how South Florida will be transformed by the power of the gospel in our generation is when you go to work under the power of the Holy Spirit and you do your work with excellence for God. And this last week, what we're looking at, what we just see from Joseph, is just like Jesus was sent into this world, so you and I are sent into, a, into the world. Incarnating in, the pre, in this world, being the presence of Jesus here. I want you to see what Jesus said. John 17, he says this, praying for us, he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The paradigm of Jesus entering into a world where he could have easily looked around and said, I'm the creator. I don't belong in the creation. I'm holy. This is unholy. Uh, I'm, I, deserve, I belong to be in heaven where I'm worshiped. Many times where he's down here and he's rejected. He's now declared the word over our lives is he's declared us sons and daughters of God. We belong to the kingdom of heaven to worship Jesus. But he sent us into this world. We are to be in incarnational in this world. What do I mean by incarnational? It's like this. Let me give you three things. The first is this. Incarnation. We are a picture of Christ and you are a picture of Christ in your present culture. Here's what we're supposed to do in that stickiness of entering into the, the, the messiness of this world. You and I are to live out our faith and demonstrate what it would look like for Christ to be in our culture. If you are, most of you who are here at the West Pines campus or there at Cooper City or you're watching online, most of us live in Dade and Broward. We're South Floridians. And so what your calling is on Monday is to be, to show what it would look like if Christ walked as a South Floridian. Not to avoid culture, not to be against culture, not also to assimilate into culture and become just like culture. No, we're to step in and allow the Holy Spirit to show what a redeemed version of a South Floridian looks like. So just like Joseph, he, he dressed like um, an Egyptian and he, he looked a lot like the Egyptian and he spent his time like an Egyptian and probably spent his money similar to an Egyptian would be, but he did it as an, a Yahwist. He did it as a person that was a follower of God, a man of God in the same way. You will enter into South Florida and you and I will probably shop at the same stores where you can buy clothes as the rest of our South Floridians but we're probably not necessarily going to buy the same and wear the same clothes as our South Floridians because we're showing a redeemed version of it. We're, we're going to have this, a lot of the same hobbies that our South Floridian friends have. 
But that doesn't mean that we're going to spend our time the exact same way our other South Floridians will do because we're going to show a redeemed version. We're going to be part of the same economy as our other South Floridians are, but that doesn't mean we're going to spend our money the same way other South Floridians will. We will show what a redeemed version of a South Floridian looks like. That's what incarnational means. We're going to be the presence of Christ in our present culture. Here's the second one. To be incarnational on Monday means that you have a purpose for your platform. Christians often fall into one of two traps. One of them we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, a Christian, um, uh, they, they enter in wanting to overtly give glory to God, but they're doing that with their words. They're not doing it with their work. And so when excellence doesn't lead the way, does it really bring glory to God? The other extreme is that someone is protecting their platform. Well, I've got platform now, so I need to grow my platform. So I, I've got to be careful what I, I say about, about God because I really want to grow my platform. And then they keep growing their platform, growing their platform, growing their platform. If you're incarnational, there is a purpose for your platform. It is to glorify God. Don't wait and do that later. Do what Joseph did. Seize the opportunity. Do it overtly. Don't do it obnoxiously, but do it overtly. Use wisdom. Your platform has a purpose. Here's the third one. Incarnationally means that he's going to bring redemption through your relationships. It's going to be messy. We don't, we don't get sent into the world and isolate ourselves from the world. He sent you in. There are people around you that he wants you to draw close. If we're going in the world like Jesus went in the world, that means he, he, he was willing to go to the Pharisee's house and the tax collector's house. He entered in and he wants to work re redemption through those relationships. Church, I want you to see, as we've been doing each week, I want you to see what this looks like in uh, some of the, the stories, um, some of the lives of your City Rev family members. I want you to check out this video um, and look at what it looks like to live out your faith at work. Check this out. I work for the 988 Veterans Military Crisis Line. Um, I assist veterans every night, um, working the night shift in crisis, they call and I'm there to meet them wherever they need me. Typical night, um, I log in and the first thing I do is pray. I ask that God use me however it is that he thinks that that person needs me. Um, whoever it is that I answer the phone, whether it be a veteran, a family member, a friend, or a child that misdialed. My day looks like, uh, depending on what the schedule calls for, um, most of the times we're on, on the road going to universities around Florida or we get to take pictures of them for composites for the school or if they want to have personality pictures. Um, we also do, we have the ability to do fashion, um, lifestyle, we could do family portraits. When I first started my job, I thought that there would be a lot of sad stories and I've seen God uh, bring a lot of hope, love, um, Grace, I get everything from uh, talking to someone who is lonely to talking to someone who is having thoughts about suicide and needing support and um, someone to talk to them about what the purpose of their life is. What I do serves our city because we get to take a brief moment and freeze it in time. Um, we get to take pictures for students and for families that they can hold on for generations to show their accomplishments 
I ask every day that I go to work that God use me and um, whatever way it is that he would like to use me. What I've found is that the callers, they always ask, Jasmine, where are you located? And I tell them I'm in South Florida. And so I think knowing that there's somebody in South Florida that cares about them, being there for them, it speaks volumes to the church here in South Florida. And they know that they, we care. I would say my job is an act of worship because when it comes to working with people that are most likely not Christian and they have this stranger coming in and getting to their personal space, uh, you can tell sometimes they're a bit, little bit abrasive or, you know, with our studio, we try to take our time with them and, and really uh, get to know them on their level versus trying to get them on ours. This is my calling. God has provided me with a clear vision that I'm here to be there for those that are most vulnerable and most in need. And all throughout my career, I've had positions like that. And so I'm just grateful for this opportunity to be here um, in some of the darkest moments that individuals might face. Sometimes our conversations aren't so great and they're, um, they may be insulting. They may be um, talking about the, how they don't believe in God at all. And so those calls are challenging, but what I do is I show the attributes that God shows to us. I show love, I show grace, I show patience. Being sure that I'm not being influenced by that and meeting them where they are, I keep myself in a position of how God would be in those places. You know, just maintaining the fruit of the Spirit is not easy to do every day, but uh, I am an ambassador of Christ and I'm a representative of Christianity in that moment. And although I am very small and insignificant, I can be the one person out of the hundred people that the Lord sends their way. And uh, to just to be part of that is huge to me. I think every job is a calling from God. Um, if you don't think that your job is a calling from God, then maybe work on um, looking around you. Um, sometimes we're focused on being successful and focused on doing our job better, but maybe there's someone next to you that you can help do their job better or someone that you can provide support to. Even in talking about mental health, you can check on your coworker and just be a support or listening ear for them during break time when you just want to sit alone. Um, listening to them and hearing them. A lot of people just need to be heard. It's not about fixing their problems, they just want to be heard. That's great, great word. Yeah, let's celebrate that. I don't know where it is that God is sending you on Monday, but he's sending you indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. There's fruit of that Holy Spirit that's to be coming out of your life. And you are an ambassador, representative of Jesus. And make no mistake, yes, you and I are the insignificant part of the equation. We're, it's not us who interpret dreams. It's God at work. But when God is at work, there's nothing insignificant about it. And so know that whatever might just seem like a normal, ordinary day, there's no telling what God wants to do through you as he shows up in your work. What an encouragement as I think about Joseph. He went by the name, like this was his name, God speaks and he lives because that was Joseph's story. Joseph was in the pit, but he was raised out of the pit because God spoke. And because of that, he came out of the pit and back to life. Do you know that's also your story? That's the story you live out when you go to work. The only reason that you and I are not facing an eternity away from God is that he has spoken over our life. Jesus Christ, 
He took our death on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose again to life. And that gospel has been spoken over our life. And as we respond in faith, what God speaks over our life because of the work of Jesus is not only are you forgiven, not only is all your sin taken away, but the righteousness of Jesus has been placed on you. And you are called sons and daughters of God. That is the word he speaks over your life. And because of the word that God speaks, you and I will live for eternity. That truth of the gospel. That truth of the gospel. That's the name that we carry when we go into our places of work. That's the name we carry. God has spoken over your life and you now live. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I believe that there are some here today that you came in here seeking. You came in here searching and you heard us sing sing things like only God satisfies, only Jesus satisfies. He's wanting to speak a word over you. Someone greater than Joseph came, Jesus came and he took death on the cross to pay for your sins. And he rose again from the dead on the third day. And that is off, that salvation is offered to you. You can be called a son or daughter of God by just receiving that work of salvation in faith. And so if that's you, if you want to walk out of here finding what your soul has been searching for all this time once and for all, I want to lead you in a silent prayer right there in your seats. Would you just pray this silently to God? Just say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for the work you did that I could find salvation. You did it. There's nothing I could do. Thank you for adopting me. I am now a daughter or a son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate with those who gave their life to Jesus today? If that was you, if you're watching online, I want you to grab your phone and go to cityrev.org slash faith. Just answer a couple questions so we can Thanks mail you a Bible. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.